Amen, amen. Mark chapter eight, page 705 is where we're gonna be together. So uh, three or four weeks ago, my wife, Sydney, uh, was, uh, she had taken our three boys to Micah's t-ball game. Micah's my oldest son, and I had to preach that night, and so it was the one game I had to miss this year. I was one of his coaches, and I was bummed to miss his game, but she took him to the game. And if you ever played t-ball or if you ever played any youth sport, what is the best part of any uh, youth sport? It's, it's the snack at the end of the game, right? And so uh, the only reason those kids play t-ball is because at the end of the game, someone's gonna bring them a snack. And so uh, on this day, I won't mention the parents that brought the snacks, but it wasn't us. They, they brought these strawberry kind of pink yogurt-filled pouches for these kids to eat after a hot game of t-ball out in the field. And so you probably know where this story's going. So Micah, because he doesn't have any restraint, is just pounding as many of these strawberry yogurt-filled snacks as he's allowed to eat, just eating them as fast as he can, gets in my car, because Sydney was borrowing my car for the day, gets in my car, and they're, they're driving to come meet me over at church, and he starts vomiting. And I'm not talking about, you know, like spit up, like kids spit up. I'm talking about like grown man vomit, you know, from your toes, you know, your back is going to hurt the next day because you have so forcefully vomited. And he is just like killing my car with this strawberry yogurt vomit everywhere. Now, the only thing that smells worse than vomit in the carpet of your car is strawberry yogurt vomit because as your car begins to bake in the sun, that yogurt just begins to spoil. And I mean, it was just just terrible, you know. And so we did what any Americans would do. We sold the car in Craigslist the next day. Um, no, we wanted to. We, we took it, we got it, we got it detailed, and we scrubbed and washed and shampooed the cars and back. And for the next three weeks, I kid you not, I was driving around in my car with a bottle of Febreze in the cup holder, just spraying it up the nose, spraying it in the car. Just the smell of the car was unbearable. And then by the grace of God, the smell just finally goes away. And so uh, this past week, Sydney had not been in my car in almost a month because of the smell. She gets into the car and as soon as the door opens, she's like, oh, this car still smells terrible. Uh, I said, what? I thought the smell had gone away. You know, for the last 10 days, I hadn't even noticed it. And I'll never forget what Sid said. She looked at me and she said, Dave, you've become nose blind. Like, you've gotten so used to the terrible smell, you don't even notice it anymore. And she said, this is a, a real problem. The car smells Terrible, and, and we began laughing, thinking about all the people that have ridden in my car over the last week that didn't say anything to me because they're too nice and they're too polite and they didn't, didn't, didn't want to hurt my feelings. And I've laughed about that conversation all week where you know, Sid was reminding me of just how easy it is to be oblivious to the things that used to be offensive to us, right? That over time, you can become oblivious to the things that, that used to, to repulse you and propel you and I kept thinking of that conversation with Sid as I've read this story in Mark chapter eight because Jesus, metaphorically speaking, looks at the disciples and he, he says, you've become nose blind to the smell of your culture. You, you have lost your spiritual sense of smell, your spiritual sense of sight. You have lost, you know what it takes? And you become oblivious to the smells of your religious and of your secular culture and the ways in which they begin, they've begun to infiltrate your life and the way that you think about Jesus. And so there's this moment that we're gonna look at in Mark chapter eight where Jesus in love looks at his disciples and he begins awakening the taste buds of their hearts and their minds and their imaginations again to the reality of God in the world. And Jesus is gonna challenge them with something really hard. It's gonna be in this short little boat ride where he's gonna look at the disciples and he's gonna ask them, to really take a look at their heart, a spiritual inventory of the heart. And he's gonna say, what are the areas of your life 
What, what are the invisible, you know, not easily noticed areas of your life that make it difficult for you to take Jesus seriously? And this is the one question, the big idea that we're gonna wrestle with in Mark chapter eight. If you take notes, I'd encourage you to write down that question. What are the seemingly invisible areas of your life that make it difficult for you to take Jesus seriously? Maybe it's a habit, maybe it's a sin, maybe it's a systematic way of thinking. Jesus looks at the disciples, these men who had been with him for more than two years, seen all the miracles, the teachings, and he's, he's waking them up to the reality that they're still driving around in a car that doesn't smell as good as they think it is. He's gonna say, let's wake up. So we're gonna pick up in Mark chapter eight. If you were with us last week, there's this beautiful, amazing moment. Jesus for three days is surrounded by 4,000 people who are just hanging on his every word. He's teaching them the good news about the kingdom of God. And at the end of three days after being in the desert, they're, they're starving, they haven't had anything to eat. And Jesus takes seven pieces of bread and a few small fish and he multiplies them miraculously to feed thousands of people. He shows them in one moment just the sufficiency and the might and the beauty of God. And then this story unfolds right after it. Pick up in verse 11. Uh, just look at the word of God with me. This is the way that it begins. It says, the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders, the, the pastors, the priests of their day. It says, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they immediately began to question Jesus, to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So he sighed deeply. Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. So then Jesus left the Pharisees. He got back into the boat and he crossed to the other side. So just imagine this with me for just a moment. Jesus has just spent three days with men and women who are desperately hungry to have their lives touched by the power and the sufficiency of God. He teaches them for three days then at the end of those three days, he performs this amazing miracle. He takes seven pieces of bread, a few fish. He multiplies it to feed the whole crowd. And this is the conversation that happens right after that miracle. The Pharisees come up and they say, Jesus, do you have anything that you could do to prove to us that you're a God? And can't you imagine Christ? He's just like, ah, like, how did you miss it? Seven pieces of bread and fish. I, I just showed you the sufficiency of God. How did you miss it? I'm not giving you any more signs. And he gets into a boat and he begins to cross back over to the place that they just come from. And it's in the midst of that frustrating conversation. That frustrating conversation is lingering in the back of Jesus's mind that he begins to have this conversation with his disciples. So as he gets into the boat, look at verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread with them except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. So that's a major party foul. You know, Jesus had just done this great miracle. They had seven basketfuls of bread. They just managed to bring one loaf and they're like, oh, this is bad news. They're, they're in the boat. Jesus is frustrated by the conversation that he's just had with the disciples. And he turns around and he looks at the disciples and this is what he says. Be careful, be careful. This is the verse that we're gonna camp out in. I want you to hear these words. He says, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. I don't know if you write in your Bible, but you should underline that phrase, be careful, that phrase, watch out. It is this imperative, emphatic command of Jesus. This is not a passing statement. Jesus is not in this 14-foot fishing boat with these 12 men. He doesn't turn around and say, hey, guys, be careful. The, the, the picture that Mark is giving us in the original language, this is a forceful 
clear, emphatic, continual command. Jesus turns around and he's looking at the disciples, much like I look at my boys when they run out in the street chasing a soccer ball, almost getting hit by a car, and I'll stop them and I'll go, boys, look at me. Look at me. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Watch out. That's the tone. That's the, the feeling that Christ, he turns around in the boat. He's just had this conversation. He says, be careful. Continuously watch out. Protect your lives, your heart from the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And I love the disciples because they're like us. You know, they don't get what Jesus is talking about. And it says they immediately turn to each other and they begin to discuss. Is he saying this because we don't have any bread? And I love verse 17. It says, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them. Now, why was Jesus aware of their discussion? It was not because he is God, although he knows all things. This is not why Jesus is aware of the discussion. He is aware of their discussion because he is in a 14-foot fishing boat with 13 men. They are packed into this boat. He turns around and gives them this spiritual, you know, kind of charge, this command, be careful for the use of the Pharisees. And then here's all the kids in the back of the van going, what's he talking about? What's he mean? Is this because he lost the bread? And I love Jesus' response. You don't see Jesus lose it a whole lot. But I think this is one of those moments where just in love, Jesus begins to lose it. He looks back at the disciples and he says, why are you talking about having no bread? Why are you talking about bread? I don't know if you ever picture Jesus with emotion. I don't know if you ever picture Jesus getting frustrated, but he was fully God and fully human. And it means at times he just lost his mind. And he's like, what is going on? How can you miss this? He keeps going. Look at this in verse 17. He says, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hard? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces do you think we picked up? And don't you know that some of the disciples, no one wanted to answer. Jesus is upset. No one wants to answer. How many? 12, they said. Verse 20. And what about when I broke seven loaves for the 4,000 just like 30 seconds ago? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven, they replied. And Jesus responded, do you still not understand? Do you still not see it? Do you still not get it? And this is a pivotal moment in the gospel of Mark. We'll see this over the next few weeks. This will be the turning point that will in so many ways launch the disciples into the life that God has made them for. But that moment of mission is gonna be propelled first by their moment of uh, of confusion and lack of understanding. You know, that is great hope for a person like me. That so often it's the moment of confusion that God uses to propel us into mission, not our moment of certainty. And so Jesus looks at the disciples. And he, says, he says, do you not see it? Do you not get it? Come back with me to verse 15. This is where we're gonna camp out. He says, be careful then. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, this is kind of a confusing statement. You know, here we are 2,000 years removed. We're sitting in a bar in downtown Nashville, Tennessee on these very comfortable white plastic chairs talking about a conversation that a first century Jewish rabbi had in a fishing boat with some of his followers. And it's easy to miss this, but in so many ways, I believe that this is one of the most relevant conversations for us in this day and time in the context of the American church that Jesus ever has with his disciples. 
He gives them this warning, and I think it's the same warning that he gives to us, any of us that actually wanna follow Christ, any of us that want to see the ways of Christ break in. He begins to, to really kind of encourage them and saying, listen, you have no idea just how bad the air in your car still stinks. You have no idea just how infiltrated your life has been by both your religious upbringing, the Pharisees, and your cultural upbringing, Herod. And you have no idea the ways in which those two worlds have made it very difficult for you to believe that I am who I am. And Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, if you're not careful, the very same thing that just happened to the Pharisees on the shore where they saw the miraculous provision of God and then immediately turned around and doubted my sufficiency. He said, if you're not careful, that same way of living will happen to you. I want you to hear this with love. Please hear this with love. But this is one of my great fears for the American church, including our American church, especially in a place like Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my fear is that we will grow up sitting in this place and we will learn all the stories of the Bible and yet we will never experience the stories of the Bible. That our, our spiritual knowledge will exceed our level of spiritual participation and experience. And Jesus turns to his eyes and says, he says, be careful for the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, in order for us to understand this passage, we've got to understand what yeast is. And I just want to give you a little footnote here. Everything that I'm getting ready to share with you about yeast um, did not come out of my brain. Will, the guy that leads worship for us, he's kind of our Renaissance man here on Ethos. He can lead worship. Uh, he can build things out of wood. Uh, he can cook really nice gourmet meals. It's like, if you ever want someone to do anything, Will's the guy to ask. And so earlier this week, I was reading this passage and I thought, what's the big deal about yeast? Jesus uses, uses it all throughout his teaching. So I came to Will, and then I went to Wikipedia to verify what he had shared with me. And I said, can you tell me, like, explain what yeast is? Because I knew that yeast was important in making bread rise and in making beer, beer. But, but what does yeast actually do? And so Will began to kind of share some insights with me. Uh, yeast is this microorganism. It's this little living thing. It's related to the fungus family, to the fungi family, sort of like a mushroom. And it, it's so small, you can't see it. It's rapidly reproducing. It, it grows and it moves and it matures at just an unbelievable rate. Yeast is found absolutely everywhere. It's, it's in the air that we're breathing right now. It's on your skin. It's, it's in the dirt. It's on the ground. Yeast can be found almost everywhere. During the, the days of Jesus, they didn't understand the microbiology of yeast, but what they discovered is that if you put a piece of dough out on a counter, or if you left uh, a cup of grape juice out on the counter, that there was something in the air that would get into that bread or would get into that juice. And whatever this something was, this yeast, it would feed on the sugars in the bread or it would feed on the sugars in the juice. And then in turn, it would release both air and ethanol, which is alcohol. And when you would cook the bread, it would, instead of being flat and dense, and not very enjoyable to eat, it would be light and fluffy. So when you look at a piece of bread tomorrow, when you take your sandwich to work and you see all those little pockets in the bread, that's a sign that, kind of gross, but that something has been living and breathing through that bread. Uh, yeast is a living organism, right? It's this kind of fascinating thing. And so you cook the bread and the bread will rise and the alcohol will burn off. That's why you don't need an ID to buy a loaf of bread. Kind of the same process that works in alcohol. And here's what they began to discover is that yeast would, was not just small and it wasn't just rapidly reproducing, um, but it was life-changing, structure-changing. It changed the way they cooked. It changed the way they worked. It changed the way they understood things. And it was generational-lasting. 
And so they began to discover that when they'd make a batch of bread, they didn't have to start from scratch every time. Once uh, a batch of dough had yeast in it, they'd break off a little piece of that dough, they'd set it on the other side of the counter. And so the next day, whenever they were gonna make bread, they didn't have to start all over, they would just put new flour around that old yeast. And it would spread through that flour, and they'd do the same thing over and over and over. And so they started passing yeast down generation after generation after generation. And so a mother would give a ball of yeast to her daughter, to her granddaughter, to her great-grandchildren. And during the days of Jesus, they understood that sometimes when you were eating a loaf of bread, you were eating a loaf of bread that had yeast that was thousands of years old. Crazy, gross, semi-weird thought, but it's something they understood. And so Jesus loved using this metaphor as yeast to talk about kind of the invisible nature of the spiritual world. So sometimes when Jesus would talk about yeast, he'd use it in a good way. So maybe you remember Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus uses yeast as the metaphor to talk about the ways in which the kingdom of God spreads. In other words, he says, listen, there's these small, invisible, rapidly reproducing thing called faith. And it's in the air you breathe, it's all around you. When it gets into your life, it, it spreads and it grows and it goes generation and generation to generation. And so when Jesus talks about yeast in Matthew chapter 13, he's talking about the good ways in which the kingdom of God spreads. But here in Mark chapter eight, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, be careful Look out for the yeast of your culture, the things of Herod, and the yeast of the Pharisees, the religious world that you grew up in. He says, because without realizing it, your life is being infiltrated, being bombarded by, being surrounded by things that are small and feel invisible, that rapidly reproduce that last generation after generation after generation. And it is this yeast of the Pharisees, it is this yeast of Herod that will make it very difficult for you to take the life of Jesus seriously. And Jesus knew it was quite possible for people to spend all of their time and all of their lives around Jesus, just like the disciples had, and still look nothing like him. And it's possible for you and I to spend our whole life sitting, attending, worshiping, giving, being a part of a great church, and have a life that still looks nothing like Jesus, why? because the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod, this small, rapidly reproducing, heart-changing, generational surviving thing keeps going and going and going. So Jesus turned around to the disciples, he says, be careful, watch out, guard your hearts, guard your lives. And so this week I was asking the question, okay, so I, I know what yeast is, what is the yeast of the Pharisees? What is the yeast of Herod? And I think in the context of Mark, you can go back and read your Bibles, test me on this, look at the scriptures, but I think Mark is making his case very clear in chapter six through eight, six through eight, that the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod is the yeast of unbelief. And that although religious unbelief looks different from secular unbelief, they both lead us into the same place, and that is to a place of knowing about Jesus, but not actually knowing Jesus. Of knowing what Jesus can do, but never experiencing what Jesus is doing. So I want you to think with me for just a second. Hang with me, I know this is a lot, but it's gonna be important as we bring it down to the ground. Think about the way that religious belief, kind of un, the way that re religious unbelief plays itself out in your world right here and right now. And so religious unbelief is the type of unbelief that sits in church on Sunday and says, I believe that God is all powerful and all good and all sufficient. So with your lips, you say one thing, but with your life, you say something totally different on Monday. 
And so on Sunday, you can sing, man, God is my provider, he's my healer, he's present, he loves me, and then on Monday, you get into that job, and what happens when things don't go well? You freak out, you lose your mind, and what you sung with your lips, on Monday, it becomes very clear you don't believe it with your heart, right? Give you another example of religious unbelief. You can say something like, God is gracious and true. God is grace. He's kind. He's merciful. And then on Friday night, you, you do that thing again, whatever that thing is for you. And you swore that you were done doing that thing. Have you ever done that thing? Have you ever gone back to whatever that pet sin is and you just cannot shake it? And then all of a sudden, it's tough for you to believe that God is gracious. And so you say things like, I can't pray right now. Well, I thought you said you believe God is gracious. Well, in your moments where you can't pray, what are you revealing? That what you said with your lips, you don't believe with your heart, right? And so Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful. The yeast of religious unbelief is in the air all around you, and you will spend your whole life listening to great sermons and great podcasts about a God who has done amazing things, and you will never expect him to do those in your life. So the yeast of spiritual unbelief, of religious unbelief, he said, but watch out for the yeast of Herod, the, the, the yeast of your culture. He says, you don't even realize just how thick it is. It's, it's everywhere. And it is one thing to say that Jesus is your Lord. It is another thing to live as though Jesus is your Lord. And a lot of times, we don't realize how, how much our car has been infused with the smell of our culture, right? So secular unbelief is different from religious unbelief. Religious unbelief at least says that you believe. Secular unbelief says from the beginning, no, I, I don't believe. I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I don't believe that he's good or powerful, that his ways are best. So secular unbelief is this outright rejection of the ways of God. And I know we're sitting in here on a Sunday and there's this temptation to go, would any of us wrestle with secular unbelief? I just wanna tell you, I wrestle with secular unbelief every day. Happens in a variety of ways. Uh, just ask us some questions to think about for just a minute. Who is it that actually informs your view of sex? Is it Christ or is it culture? So it's one thing to be in here on Sundays and go, man, Jesus, whatever you say, however you say it, that's what we believe. That's what we believe. And then you get into to, to the world on Monday and you realize that your practice of sex, your view of sex, your thoughts on when it's appropriate and when it's not, when it's good, when it's not, what's normal, what's not, you realize that Christ has never been your teacher when it comes to sex. And that your, your, your way of living sexually has actually been more, um, has been more driven by the air that you breathe, the culture around you, right? Or maybe another example, uh, money. You know, it's one thing to stand here on Sunday and go, man, Christ, all we have is yours. Everything we have is for you. And then your checkbook is like, you're a liar. <laughs> your checking guy's like, that's not true. And you're like, well, I, I tithe. No, you don't, you kind of do, okay. I'm generous. God, all my stuff is for you if you just ask for it. And your bank statement says, no, that's not true. What you really believe about money is that money exists for your entertainment, for your comfort, for your security, for your stomach, right? And we could go on and on and on and on. You could take all the areas of your life, the areas that don't feel very spiritual, 
And this is the conversation that Jesus is having with the guys in the boat. He's saying, listen, you have no idea just how much your life is being affected by the air that you breathe. And in fact, you're being so affected by the air that you breathe, you don't even know you're breathing the air. You don't even know that the car still stinks. And Jesus is awakening their senses. Be careful for the yeast of unbelief. Whether it's religious unbelief that's been passed down for generations or it's secular unbelief that's changing and, and challenging the way that you see, see Jesus, Jesus says, don't be like the Pharisees who stood on the shore and saw the miraculous outpouring of God's strength and then woke up on Monday and said, God, are you even here? Are you even real? Are you really who you say you are? And the disciples within 30 seconds of Jesus' statement to them proved that the yeast of unbelief has already gotten a hold of their hearts. Jesus says, be careful. And they say, is he talking about bread? Is this a conversation about bread? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't you understand? And it's so easy, 2,000 years removed. I mean, we're sitting here in this room. We're not in a boat with Jesus. We're not having a conversation about bread. It's so easy to, to miss these moments and to judge these men and women and to never really stand before the Lord and say, okay, God, where has the yeast of our culture and our religious upbringing disrupted the view of God that you've made us to have? What are the, what are the small, seemingly unnoticeable, invisible places in my habits and in my life and in my thinking that have challenged my ability to take Jesus seriously? See, I'm convinced that the reason most of us know all the stories, or many of us know all the stories about God, but so rarely experience them. It's not because of the, the, the big things in our life. It's because of the yeast, the, the yeast of unbelief that has infiltrated and spread and, and made it so easy to miss out on. And so Jesus stops and he says, come on, don't you see? And I, I want you to hear this, this is so important. Jesus isn't pointing out their unbelief to make them feel bad. He's doing this because he loves them. He goes, God, you're made for more. Jesus knows that you and I are made for more than just sitting and listening and standing and singing and then walking out of here unchanged. Jesus knows that you're made for more. He knows that we're made to live lives infused with the very presence and the power of God, but he also knows just how easy it is to not just hear a sermon, but to literally see the divine things of God break into the world around you and then immediately stand on the shore like the Pharisees or sit in the boat like the disciples and miss it all together. And Jesus says, guard your heart, guard your life, guard your mind from this yeast. So let's kind of pull this down to the ground for a few minutes before we take communion together. I go, how do we take Jesus' word seriously? Like, how do we diligently, persistently, continuously guard our lives against the yeast of unbelief, whether it's religious or secular? And I wanna give you just kind of two really practical pieces of homework to try this week that I take right out of this story here in Mark chapter eight. And this is for you if you're a Christian or if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're interested in Jesus, I'd encourage you to try these things, okay? So the first thing, how do you begin to uncover your places of unbelief in your life. I think the first thing, first thing that I want you to notice from this story is that this always happens in community with Jesus and others who are trying to follow Jesus. First thing, 
happens in community with Jesus and others who are trying to follow Jesus. So this is really important. Jesus does not give them this warning. He doesn't give it to them in the middle of a sermon or in the middle of a synagogue or a church service. Where does he give them this, this warning? In the midst of everyday life. In the midst of just an everyday moment, these guys are doing life together. They're, they're doing life with Jesus. And Jesus, in the midst of them doing community with him and with each other, he turns around and says, hey, this is an area of your life that's been overrun with unbelief. I think sometimes when we think about biblical community, we think about our house churches and our small groups and our Bible studies, and that's all great, and keep thinking of those things, but I wanna challenge you to go just a little bit deeper as we think through this text. I want you to think about the ways in which you do spiritual community with the people that you see most often, your family, your friends, your roommate. How is it that you begin to kind of live this out? I'll share an example from my life of how God has uncovered some unbelief in me uh, through my community. So with my family, uh, my wife Sydney, we have three little boys. One of the things that we try to do every morning, we, we read a story out of the Bible, out of their little kid's Bible book. We'll read the story, and then we'll just ask our boys a couple of questions. They're four, three, and six months old, so this is not deep, spiritual, theological conversation, okay? So I'll read the story, and then I'll turn to my boys and say, what just happened in the story? And then the second question is, what does that mean? And then the third question is, what should we do with that today? And so in the context of our little spiritual community, we'll read the scriptures, walking with Jesus together. What happened? What does it mean? What do we do with it, okay? So a few months ago, we're reading through Mark chapter two, and we get to the story of the paralyzed man that's lowered down through the mat, and Jesus heals him, and I ask the boys, what happened? And they say, a man with no legs is healed by Jesus. What does it mean? Jesus loves people whose legs aren't working. Good job. What do we do with it? We tear holes in people's roofs. Well, you know, we'll figure that out. What do we do with it? And so we start talking about it. And so every morning, we'll read the story together. We'll talk as a family. And then at dinner, I'll come back, and after work, we'll sit down at dinner and just ask them, hey, tell us a story this morning. And it's their turn to tell it to me. And then I'll ask them the questions. And so you don't think we're more spiritual than we are. They never remember it by dinner time, And so we have to kind of jog their memories. You know, this morning, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they'll start telling the story. So a few months ago, we had read this story, the, the man being lowered down through the roof to be healed by Jesus. And then we got to dinner and we talked about it. What does it mean? It means that Jesus loves people that can't walk. And that he can do something about it. They can heal them. So at, right after dinner, through the boys in the car with me, we went to the airport to pick up my mom. And uh, we got there a few minutes early and we're standing there and this woman rolls by on a wheelchair and I'm not thinking anything of it, but I, I look over and my uh, two oldest sons, Micah and Jack, they have walked over to this lady and they're beginning to tell this woman in the wheelchair about the God who loves people whose legs don't work. And I'll just be so honest with you. I was not proud of them in this moment. You know, I wasn't looking at them going, wow, what a beautiful spiritual moment. I was mortified and embarrassed and I'm, I'm, it's just real. I just thought, oh God, this is so politically incorrect. Bless these kids' hearts. What are they doing? Can I leave them here without people knowing they're with me? Like, what, what, what do I do about this? And they're telling her the story and she's listening and she's being sweet and polite and then they just start praying over her and, and you know, Jack saying, get up and walk, get up and walk and, and uh, you know, and I wish, so just, you know, spoiler alert, I wish that she got up and danced to jig right at the airport. It would have been a great ending to this sermon. Um, but she didn't. Uh, you know, there wasn't a physical miracle in her life. 
But man, there was certainly at the very least a spiritual miracle in my heart where God looked at me and in the context of community through my children, he said, Dave, do you see how deep your unbelief is? You stand up every week and you tell ethos just how powerful and good and strong Jesus is, but you still don't believe it. You told your boys this morning and this evening that I am the God who loves disabled people, who can heal disabled people, and when you had the opportunity to follow me in obedience, you, you cowered away like a politically correct idiot. And there's this moment where in community, my unbelief just brought to the surface. Have you ever had this happen before? Where you see someone in your friend group or in your neighborhood or in your work suddenly start living out the ways of Jesus more radically than you've ever dreamt of. And because of the way that they're living, your way of living is instantly challenged. Have you ever been there? And you're trying to stuff it down, you're trying to ignore? It's a moment in community where Jesus is turning around in the boat and he's looking at you. And he's saying, be careful of the yeast of unbelief. Be careful. And I think part of this, we live this out in community with people that are following Jesus. Second kind of takeaway, homework item, that not just about living in community with Jesus and each other, but the second thing that I want you to think about is how you go about reflecting upon these moments of discovery with that community. So the second thing is, how do you reflect on this? So Jesus, in the context of community, invites his disciples into a place of reflection. How many questions does Jesus ask the disciples? He keeps asking, don't you see? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hard? These are, these are questions of reflection. He's just uncovered the yeast of unbelief in their life and he's inviting them to reflect. Why is it that you don't believe? Why is it that you're not living the way that you've been meant to live? Is it that yeast of unbelief has infiltrated you? I wanna give you two questions to reflect on with your community this week. Maybe this is the people you eat lunch with today. Maybe this is the folks in your house, church, in your apartment complex. Maybe it's with your spouse, your friends. But I wanna give you two questions that I found to be very helpful in my own life for uncovering both religious unbelief and secular unbelief. So, so the first one, here's a question uh, for your religious unbelief to wrestle with. First question, what do you worry about? What do you worry about? Worry is not a value in the kingdom of God. Worry is straight from the pits of hell. In fact, Jesus says it is possible to live a life without worry. And most of us, unbelief is so deep in our hearts, we don't even believe that Jesus' statement about worry is even possible. So we worry about what he tells us when he says, don't worry. What do you worry about? Worry is nothing more than an open assault on both the character and the competency of God. Worry will bring to the surface all kinds of religious unbelief, those moments where you say, I believe God can do anything, and then you spend the next four weeks worrying because you don't think he will do anything, right? What are the things that keep you up at night? What do you worry about? So in the context of your community, with Jesus and with people, if you wanna uncover some of your areas of unbelief, be really honest about the things that make you worry. Here's a second question for you. This is for... Those of you that wanna uncover some of maybe your secular unbelief, what is it about Jesus that still embarrasses you? What is it about Jesus that still embarrasses you? Have you ever had one of those moments with Jesus that reminds you of that feeling you had in middle school when your parents would show up at the mall to pick you up in front of your friends? And you're like, oh, they're here. 
I don't want my friends to see my parents. Maybe you never felt that. I was just a horrible teenager, okay? But that, that moment where you're just embarrassed, oh, I don't want to be seen with my parents in public, whatever that may have been. Have you ever had one of those moments with Jesus? Like, it is easy to be bold in here on a Sunday, to worship and to pray and to sing. And then you get into a conversation around um, Buffalo Wild Wings with some of your friends. And they start talking about sex. And all of a sudden, you realize that you're really embarrassed of Jesus' teachings and his ways and his commands on sexuality. It's an area of unbelief being exposed in you. Oh, I don't know if I believe that he's really good. I don't believe that he's really right. I don't believe that his way is beneficial and good for my friend here that doesn't believe in him. What is it about Jesus that still embarrasses you? Maybe it's that moment when you've just finished up med school and you know that you've gotta go tell your parents that God has called you to the mission field to use that uh, that medical degree that you've just gotten and it's never gonna pay back the bills that you've just inquired. And maybe your parents aren't followers of Jesus or maybe they are followers of Jesus, but they're not radical followers of Jesus yet. And you find this moment where you're trying to share the vision that God has put on your life and you're embarrassed to share it. You're embarrassed to tell them what it is that God's called you to do. I have found that in my own life, moments of embarrassment uncover places of secular unbelief, almost like any, almost like nothing else. So how do we begin to discover this? I think we do what the disciples did. In community, with Jesus, we reflect in real time, in real moments. We come home from the airport and we look our, our wife in the eyes and say, um, babe, it was embarrassing how little I believed. We, we sit our children down at the breakfast table the next morning and we say, okay, yesterday I told you something about Jesus that I don't yet believe. And there's this moment of uncovering, there's this moment of reflecting. But I want you to hear the good news in this, okay? What, what do you do with your unbelief? You bring it to Jesus. That's what you do with your unbelief. What, what do you do when you discover that you're not as grounded as you thought you were? that your heart's not as steady as you want it to be, that your theology is not as black and white as you've always imagined it to be. What happens when your unbelief is uncovered? I think you do what the, the, the dad does in the gospel where he comes to Jesus and he says, oh, I believe. Jesus says, do you think you can help my child? And he says, I believe. And then there's that moment where he's like, oh, crap. That's a paraphrase, like, but I don't believe. Help my unbelief. That's what we do. What do, you, what do you do when you keep discovering that you don't believe the way you thought you did? You bring it to Christ. You bring it to Christ and you keep asking Christ to invite you into situations, to uncover all the small, invisible ways in which the air you're breathing still stinks and you don't even know it. You invite him to put you in situations and in places where you can sit in the boat with Jesus and he can help you reflect back on why is it that you still don't believe me like you think you do. He says, be careful, guard your heart, root this out, because the mission of God flourishing in you is dependent upon you coming face to face with your own unbelief. You're gonna see this over the next couple of months as we finish out the Gospel of Mark. This story that we looked at this morning is a turning point in so many ways. Jesus is gonna expose their unbelief in the next few weeks, we're gonna see how he's gonna put their belief system back together, and then he's gonna send them into the life that they're made for. 
So I wanna challenge you as the spirit of God in the context of community is bringing some things to the surface in you. Don't shy away from those moments of unbelief. Run into them, bring them to Christ, sort them out with each other and let's see what God has for us. I think it's gonna be amazing. Let's pray together as we take communion. Father, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for your word.